Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Tyson Purcell. Oh, Susie. Your vagina is brilliant. <laughs> now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. Uh, this is Yuki Sito behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Out of Character. I'll tell you, I just got back from San Francisco. We had such a phenomenal show there. And a couple nights prior, we had such a phenomenal show in New York City. (laughs) It's such a relief because January always begins with the staff taking a look at all, all the work we want to accomplish this year. And it often just starts very overwhelming and very, like, I don't know, kind of upsettingly. There's just, we've just got gigantic to-do lists. Everyone on our staff is very underpaid and very overworked and constantly wondering about the, how much time and energy we have for all of this. But... Once we got a couple of live shows under our skin for this year, under our skin, I don't know, under our belt for this year, uh, it feels like we're rocking and rolling again. It feels like, okay, all right, now 2020's on a roll. <laughs> we'll cut ourselves a little slack about accomplishing 
a million new things, you know, give ourselves a little incremental time to be doing things. And I'm so excited. We have another live show coming up at the Virgil in Los Angeles on February 5th. Don't miss that. Our first show at the Virgil was so much fun. We have another one coming up, another live show coming up in Reno, Nevada on March 13th. We're still taking pitches for that Reno, Nevada show. Also for the March 20th Cleveland, Ohio show. So listen, if you live anywhere near Reno or Cleveland, do pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions right away. And if you have any questions about the submitting process, you can always just write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Stephanie Svensson a story that she told the last time Risk was in Madison, Wisconsin. Stephanie was a first-time storyteller, had never done anything like this before. But before that, we're going to hear this ridiculous story from Tyson Purcell. It's a story that Tyson shared the last time Risk was in St. Paul. You can find Tyson on Instagram at Tyson.Purcell. Here he is now with a story we call The Adventures of Fen Fitzroberts. So, I thrive with depression. Like, I handle it really well. I consider myself really blessed because of that. Most years. But then there was like the spring of 2017, and my daughter turned to me and she looked at me, and I looked at her blue eyes, and she said, Dad, she's eight years old at the time. So, Dad, when do you think you'll be fun again? I was like, oh. And that was the wake-up call I needed. So I was like, all right, I got I to gotta snap out of this. I got to find a way out of this. So I was trying anything and everything, and then I was like, well, maybe if I get laid, maybe that will help me get over this, like, stint of depression. And uh, that's how I found myself when I was, like, late at night on Adult Friend Finder looking at ads and I saw an ad from Richard Jackson Rockhard and Susie Suzuki, and it said, Cuckold and hot wife looking for bull must be willing to role-play a villain. <laughs> I was like, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> It would be really nice if that got me laid one of these days. Uh, now, I've, I've learned the hard way that it is important to Google things when you don't know what they mean. So I was like, what is a cuckold and a bull and a hot wife? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's, it's a specific type of kink. So it's, like, it's a married couple. They love each other. They're dedicated. Everything's great. But their kink is he likes to watch somebody else fuck his wife and his wife... Yep. Uh, 
and his wife likes to be fucked by somebody else every now and again. Like, they, he does it for him. And I was like, oh, cool. So, like, I'll get, get over my depression by being, like, a stunt cock for a night. Uh, I'll be, like, a, a nice accent for their relationship. I was like, I can get behind this. This is going to be great. I went to answer the ad, and I didn't even stop to ask myself, am I a threesome guy? Because I was like, oh, fuck it. Um... <laughs> like my attitude towards sex and kink and that sort of stuff is like just show a lot of enthusiasm and try it until you like it so I was just like it'll be fine it'll be fine so I sent him a pitch but it's adult friend finder and I like I'm like I gotta stand out so I I wrote a story I'm like okay first off Richard Jackson Rockhart okay that's too much I'm just gonna call him Jack Jack's the hero of the story. He's running for local office. He's a do-gooder. He's out in the streets. He's helping people out. He's going to make a difference in the legislature, but he doesn't have enough money to run his campaign. And his new wife, Susie, she's loving, she's supportive, but she's got a dark secret because there are tons of naked photos of her online if you know where to look. And I would be the villain, the villain with the money. But I wanted to stand out. And I'm a graphic designer, or at least I was at one point in time. So I designed a campaign logo (laughs) for Richard Jackson Rockhard of the 63rd District for the Assembly of People's Man. Yeah, it's like in reflex blue because, you know, it's a Democrat. And I was like, okay, cool. Uh, I sent it off and they replied, we're in. I'm like, great, awesome. So we schedule our adventure. It's going to be like in a, in a couple, three weeks on a Friday night. And I'm like, awesome, great. But Jack just kind of throws himself into this role play, right? And he's starting to send me messages daily. He's like, I'm working for the people. I'm out. I'm shaking hands. I'm kissing babies. <laughs> and I'm getting excited, right? I'm getting excited. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, so, you know, I'm a graphic designer. So, like, I start sending him infographics of the breakdown of the numbers on the polls. So, like... <laughs> It's like, this is your opponent, and this is how close you are, and you know, looks like you're going to win. I'm really looking forward to it. So, like, our adventure was scheduled for a Friday night. That's when the polls were going to close, and we were going to find out if Jack was going to win. So we're going to meet at 6 o'clock at a restaurant near my home, and then have drinks and dinner, and if everything goes well, at 8 o'clock, the poll numbers come in, and then the rest of the adventure unfolds. So it's the day of the adventure. Go to work cut out early, I go home and I'm starting to like get in my character and I'm just like, and it dawns on me, I'm really nervous because <laughs> while I've been on blind dates before, I have never done anything like this. So I'm like, oh, you know what I need to do? Just take the edge off. So I like, I cracked open a beer and I poured a glass full of whiskey and I drank the whiskey and I <laughs> drank the beer and I was like, all oh, right, this is helping me get into character. And what was my character? My character was an Irish crime boss. Right? Speaks with an Irish lilt and has lots of money. Now, I know that sounds like I just described like a malevolent leprechaun, but I can picture it in my head. It's like, that sounds sexy. That's totally going to work. So I'm getting the nerves, but I, I got out my flask and I filled that up with the whiskey, left the whiskey on the counter, drive to the restaurant, short drive, on the drive. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? So I pull into the restaurant parking lot and I unscrew the top on that flask and I take another slug out of it. And like the burn of the whiskey, it tastes so good. And 
kind of roast my throat on the way down, but it starts a fire in my belly, and I'm like, you know what? I am Fen Fitzroberts. <laughs> so I walk in to the restaurant with some swagger. They're there. They're right where they said they were going to be. They're in a booth, and, I, and I'm looking at them. Like, they're tan, right? Like, they look like they own a boat, you know, like... <laughs> See, like, I can picture them taking their kids, like, tubing, you know, like, when they're not fucking random strangers, but, like, uh, you know, like, they look like they're hard workers, but, like, they like to crack a beer at the end of the day, you know, like, they're dark paragons of Wisconsin virtue. <laughs> so I look at Jack, and he's sitting there, he's smiling at me, and Jack, he's like a fire plug of a man. He's, like, he's a little shorter than I am, but he's got a full head of hair, and it's, like, more salt than pepper but like he's got a good smile and most of all he's real confident so we trade grips and I, I, I liked him immediately I'm like ah, this, I'm feeling better and then I look at Susie Susie Suzuki and she's attractive definitely but she's also like you know kind of wholesome which I mean that's good but like her character required something more so she's buried that wholesomeness under the guise of a midwestern femme fatale I feel like she went to Target that day and said make me look mysterious <laughs> so I finished shaking Jack's hand I go good evening Jack Susie it's a pleasure to finally meet you I see you've got a pitcher of beer there. I'd love it if you'd pour me a pint. <laughs> so I slide in next to her, and she immediately starts rubbing my leg with hers. I'm like, this is going good. I have a beer. That first little bit of the Irish thing went all right. <laughs> Start drinking the beer. Jack orders pork belly bites, which is basically like a huge thing of bacon with like sauce on top. It's fucking amazing. I love it. So I'm eating pork belly bites, I'm drinking beer, but I still, every now and then, we're like talking about the campaign, and I'm just like, you know, Jack, the numbers are looking good. I'm glad, because I've invested quite a lot of money in your campaign. And if you win, which I'm hopeful that you will, it'll be a donation. But if you lose, well, let's hope you don't lose. But it's like every so like often, I'm like starting to feel the nerves again. So like I excuse myself. It's, 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 it's like every 15 minutes for the next two hours. I get up to like, I go, I've got to just go take care of a little business on the side there. I, you know, I'm a busy man. But I go to the bathroom and I take that flask out. And I just take a little sip, just a little sip every now and again. You know, just kind of even myself out. And it's getting close to the end of the dinner. It's getting close to 8 o'clock when the election results come in. And the results come in. Turns out, Jack's opponent found those pictures of Susie Suzuki online. <gasps> right? So he gets the news that he lost the election, and he immediately starts acting the part. He's like, man, I can't believe it. And he's starting to cry. And he, I mean, he's like, I, I, I did so much for the district, the 63rd district. I was out there. I, I had such a good shot. And I'm like looking at Jack, and he's starting to make a scene. So I look at Jack, and I go, well, Jack, like I told you earlier, I gave you a bunch of money. <laughs> and that money 
was so that I could have a legislator. But I don't have a legislator now, do I? <laughs> I'll be needing it back tonight. It's like, but Fen, I don't have the money. <laughs> well, Jack, I guess I'll just be having to take it out of your flesh. And it's at this point that Susie puts her hand on my knee and starts kind of letting it move towards my groin. And she says, don't worry, Jack. Fen, I think I can pay you in a different sort of flesh. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. Jack, go get the car, pull it around. Susie, go get in the back seat. Make yourself ready for me. We'll take this back to my apartment. So I take out the flask, and I'm going to like take one last nip, and I'm like, there's nothing in the flask. And I'm like, oh, no. Because that flask holds seven shots of whiskey. And it's at this point, and it begins to dawn on me that maybe I might have had a little bit more than I thought I did. So they pull up the car, I get in the back seat, and Susie starts kissing me on the neck, which I kind of, I like, and it normally gets me a little aroused and she's kind of rubbing up against me and my nervousness now just turns to worry because I should be getting aroused but I am not. (laughs) Kind of looking down like, oh no, whiskey. (laughs) So I have ADHD, I'm like, okay, maybe if I just take an Adderall, that'll make it better. (laughs) So take one of those. Now, like, we get back to my apartment, go into my apartment, my one-bedroom loft apartment. It's 700 square feet of no walls and stairs up to the bedroom. All right, it's just like an open room that just sound echoes around in. And it's pretty sparse. I've put most of the things away, but, like, sitting on the counter is that bottle of whiskey and an empty glass. So we get inside, and Jack looks at the bottle and the one glass, and he gets an idea. He's like, hey, Fen." Do you want me to, like, pour you a glass of whiskey? Because, like, now he's, like, you know, a toady to me. And I look at him, and I know I can't have another glass of whiskey if I'm going to recover. That's just not going to fucking happen. But I look him dead in the eyes, and I'm like, Jack, hell yes, I want it. Fill it up. So he fills it up, he gives it to me, and I make a show of taking a sip of it. And it's time to move on to the bedroom. So we go up the stairs to my loft, It's my bedroom, we're in there, and I've set aside a chair. So I turn to Jack, and I'm like, Jack, because you don't have my money, part of your punishment is for you to sit there and watch me take your wife. (laughs) And Jack's trying to cry. He's trying to stay in character. I really admired his character work all night. (laughs) But this time, it wasn't really selling it all that well, because he was also, like, trying to conceal a boner, because, like, this was doing it for him. I'm like, well, I'm glad at least one of us is, like, working. Uh, So Jack sits down, and I engage Susie, and, like, you know, we're kissing, and I'm like, they start to undress her, and, like, and she's wearing, like, black lacy underthings, and that sort of thing normally, like, really does it for me. Like, a nice black bra and black panties and, and, like, black fishnet stockings. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. So I'm like, stall. I'll recover. Just stall. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do here? Like, I know all dirty talk. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to dirty talk in a different accent. <laughs> but you use a different lexicon if you're really trying to sell it. And I was like, it's like, oh, Susie, you've got s- such a fantastic funny. <laughs> so I lay her down and I, and I pull her 
panties off. I'm like, oh, Susie, your vagina is brilliant. I know, I also heard the words coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and I'm looking down and like, there's still, there's no signs of arousal. So I'm like, all right, okay, I'll just take my time. I'll just go down on her, I'll just take my time. So I go down on her, I'm like starting to lick and kiss and suck and that sort of thing. But like, and normally this sort of thing is really exciting for me. But while I'm down there, all I can really taste is the whiskey and the acid reflux from the pork belly bites. And it's like, and I'm like, and I'm just praying to God that I don't puke into Susie's brilliant vagina. How many of you have pets? Yeah. All right. Any any dog owners in the house? Yeah. I imagine one of you probably has a golden retriever. And, like, you know, when it comes time to, for, like, sexy time, if a golden retriever comes in, it'll sit next to the bed and just stare at you with those, those soulful eyes, just pleading with you to stop what you're doing and just go outside and play fetch, right? Now, that's distracting. Now, replace that pet with a now mysteriously naked 50-year-old man who somehow become very sweaty. And he's staring at you with soulful eyes but with completely different expectations. That's distracting too. And I can kind of hear Jack like working at something. So I like take a moment, I kind of shoot a glance over my shoulder and I kind of see a lot of motion in my peripheral vision. I'm like, what is that? And I look and I'm like, oh. And now I know why Jack is so confident. Because Jack's furiously beating off with what looks like a third leg. It's got like a giant kneecap on the end of it. It's like bright red and it's like, it's got a lot of motion. I'm like on the bed, in my underwear, Susie's there, Jack's behind me, and now I have to like have them explain to me that you can't put a condom on a flaccid penis, or I have to fess up. But then I get this idea, like what happens if I just misdirect? I mean, they, they've been nice. They still have their date night. I kind of still want them to like have something good. I've established this thing of getting up to go do business every so often, so I stop going down on Susie, and I get up and I say, you know, I've got to go take care of a little bit of business. So I grab the whiskey and I turn to Jack. I'm like, Jack, lad, I don't want Susie to get out of the mood, so why don't you keep her warm for me while I'm gone? And I take one step out of that room and I think like Jack made that floating noise as he like jumped off of the chair. It was like, like he went for it. So I made it about three steps down the stairway and they noisily begin copulating and it's like, it's going fucking crazy. And then I sit down on the stairs and it's at this point, I'm like, I know I'm not going to get hard. I know that this isn't going to happen. So I might as well, maybe if I just finish drinking, I can like black out and forget that this has happened. So I started sipping the whiskey, but then I get this other thought. What happens if they think I'm coming back? 
I know what I'll do. I'll just be a cheerleader. If I can get Jack to bust his nut, then this night's over. <laughs> so then from the stairway, I start calling upstairs. Great job, Jack. Keep fucking her. <laughs> Keep after it, lad. You're doing great. <laughs> and then it becomes apparent that they are finishing. And then I realize again, I'm standing here in my underwear with a half-drank glass of whiskey, and I don't really want to like, have any more interactions with them. And my apartment is just, again, one giant big room, so I go and lock myself in the only place that has any sort of privacy, and that's the bathroom. I hear them finish. Jack and Susie come downstairs. Susie kind of knocks at the door like wholesomeness comes up. Hey, are you going to be okay in there? And I'm not breaking character at this point because like, the best part of the night for me has been the role play anyway, so I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Susie, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Everything's quite all right, but you know, I'm going to have to exact my payment from you at another time. I'll be watching you. But you can let yourself out. So I wait. They leave. I finish playing Candy Crush. <laughs> I go back upstairs, kind of survey the scene. And on the bed, there looks like there's a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> I'm just like, and like, for a little bit, I had to admire the coverage because I was just like, whoa. <laughs> Look around, but on the bedside table, there's a $50 bill. Now, I don't know if that makes me a sex worker or not. <laughs> but at least I'm affordable. <laughs> All right. So, at that moment, I kind of laughed a little bit. And I've told my friends that story. And I've laughed about it ever since that day. And, like, it kind of restored laughter to my life. So it worked. <laughs> so the moral of this story, though, is probably like, don't drink on the job. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Good evening, Jack, Susie, Susie, Susie. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. I see you've got a pitcher of beer there. I'd love it if you'd pull me a point. You know, Jack, I've invested quite a lot of money. money, money, money. I gave you a bunch of money. I'll be needing it back tonight. But then I don't have the money. You know money. You know money. You know money. You know money. Well, Jack, I guess I'll just be having to take it out of your flesh. Then I think I can pay you in a different sort of flesh. Oh, Susie, you've got such a fantastic funny. Your vagina is brilliant. Oh, Susie. You know, I've got to go take care of a little bit of business. Jack, lad. I don't want Susie to get out of the mood, so why don't you keep fucking her? Keep after it, lad. You're doing great. I'll be watching you. I grew up an only child to a single mother. My mom is this strikingly beautiful black woman. Well, let me pause. I know I look really super white, but I, my mom is black. <laughs> and back in the day in the 70s, she was this like, ama- like she had a big afro and she would wear her go-go boots. And she's also a mechanical engineer. 
She's a bad mamma jamma. Yes. And my father is a white guy that I'd never met. So as a little girl, I would ask my mom questions constantly about my father because I had this burning inferno to have a dad to love. I just was a little girl that wanted a daddy, but I didn't have one. So I would ask her about him and I'd say, just tell me anything, you know, and she would get exasperated and she'd go, look, okay, his name is Peter, he's tall, he has brown hair, blue eyes, and he lives in Denmark. That was it. Nothing more. So as a little girl, I just imagined that he was looking for me and one day he was just going to show up. I vividly remember one sunny Saturday morning laying on our orange shag 1970s carpet watching cartoons and I hear my mom talking to this guy and she goes so are you ready to meet her he's like yes and then he comes into the room and I look up and he is a fox he's gorgeous he looks like magnum pi and I say Oh, my little heart, I'm telling you, was like a pinball just bouncing all inside my chest. Ding, ding, ding. This is Peter. This is Peter. This is your father. He's here. He found you. It's Peter. And my mom goes, hey, Stephanie, I want you to meet Tom. (laughs) My heart sank, and all the electricity went away from that pinball machine. I was really heartbroken, but Tom went on to marry my mother, and I had a little brother, and I love him very much, and Tom becomes my dude, man. Like, he is my for real dough dad. He, like, teaches me all these different things. He threw out our fake Christmas tree. We had real ones from then on. We went on motorcycle rides. He taught me how to um, water ski. And he was very kind and nurturing and patient, which was super important because my mom, yeah, she's a Black Panther mom. She makes a tiger mom look like a kitten. So this became really troublesome for me when I was in high school because she's so oppressively controlling and she would watch your every move. She knew everything you were doing all the time and she would fight to defend you fiercely. Like she would fight someone to the death for you but if you screw up and you step one toe out of line, her punishment is swift and severe. I couldn't go to parties, I couldn't date, I couldn't talk to boys on the phone. I still, even with that, knowing how my mom is, I still did dumb shit. Like, (laughs) one day I decided I could smoke a cigarette in my room and she wouldn't smell it if I blew it out the window. Yeah. (laughs) Puff one. Boom! My bedroom door flies open. She looks at me and she says, Stephanie, you get your ass in that chair and you are going to eat that cigarette. 
And I mean all of it, including the filter. Do not get up until you're done and hurry up. So I ate that cigarette like a champ because my life depended on it. And I puked everywhere on everything. But I don't smoke. (laughs) So because my mom, you know, I couldn't do the things my friends were doing and how much she controlled me, I thought to myself, well, maybe my birth father, Peter, doesn't even know I exist. I still had this burning desire to meet him because it was so curious he's this person in this foreign country, even though I love my dad, Tom, so dearly. And then I decided, if I could find Peter, I can get the fuck out of here (laughs) and maybe go live in Denmark. But it's the 80s, right? Like, there's no internet. The latest cutting technology was, you know, a beeper, a handful of quarters, and a payphone. There was just no way. Then fast forward to, you know, my adulthood, and then we can Google things. Well, that didn't work either. Because he also has, he shares his name with an extremely famous soccer player, probably the most famous soccer player that's ever lived in, played for Denmark. And whenever you Google him, that's all that would come up. And I needed more information. I needed a birthday. I needed something, right? I would ask my dad, Tom, hey, can you look around the house and see if mom's hiding anything or whatever? He goes, I don't know, Stephanie. I'll look, but you know, she keeps everything all hidden. So it never worked. It never, it never, it never worked. And then I um, eventually um, came across some documents, and I was going through them, and I hit pay dirt. I get his name, and I get his birthday, and his address when he was going to school here in the States. So I call my girlfriend, my, one of my besties. She comes over. We're having a glass of wine. And she goes, you know what, Stephanie? I think you should just get your ass over there. You just need to go. What are you going to do from here? Call him? That's not going to work. You you needed some things you just need to do face to face. And this way, maybe you'll get to see him. I really couldn't afford it at the time. But a bottle or maybe two of wine later, (laughs) I'm booked, man. I have booked my flight to Copenhagen, Denmark. So three weeks later, I'm standing in this magical city by myself. My husband thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> and I'm looking at all these people, and I'm thinking, one of these people could be Peter. One of these people could be my father, my brother, my sister, somebody. And then I'm just so overwhelmed. I learned that they have a social services office. They have a Freedom of Information Act because it is illegal to disinherit a child. So if you give them any information, they tell you everything, birthdays, wedding days, children's, phone numbers, addresses. So I find that pot of gold social services office and I'm standing there looking at that door going, once I go on the other side of this door, after 46 years of waiting, I can finally meet or learn more about Peter. 
Maybe I'm right here in Denmark. Maybe I can even see him today. Today. You know, so I go in there. I'm scared. Just because I don't know what's going to happen. And the lady just click, 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 click. Boom. Oh, I found him right here. His name, you know, gives me the birthday and everything. She goes, oh, great. She goes, uh, but he died in 2010. So, you know, I'm thinking that this place was a pot of gold. And for me, it's turned out to be a cemetery. I'm never going to see him. I'm never going to see his blue eyes in person. I'm never going to hear his voice or have a conversation with him. And I feel really stupid because I wish that I had just done this just a little bit earlier. But um, I didn't. So this wonderful lady behind the counter looks at me and I don't even say a word, but she saw everything on my face. And she goes, oh, that was your father, wasn't it? He said, I couldn't even talk. I just said, yeah, it was. She's so sweet. She goes, well, hey, listen, maybe, well, let's look for some other stuff. Let's just look. So then I go, okay, maybe you have an aunt's uncle or something. She goes, oh, well, look, he did. He got married on October the 17th, 1970. What? What'd you say? He got married when? October what? That motherfucker. I'm like, you're kidding me. I was born two days before that. I was born October the 15th, 1970. And if he knew I existed and did that, I don't want to meet him. And then I am becoming fiercely protective of my mom. I'm thinking, wow, really, how do you do that? She was in the hospital recovering from a C-section, which in the 70s was like a gutting, not a childbirth. And she was this newlywed woman. And then he's marrying someone else in another country. It's the 70s. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to check any records because it's not... Um, there's no internet. You have to go into a physical building and get a piece of paper. Nobody's going to do any of that stuff so he could get away with it. But anyway, so she clicks on some more. And now we're really emotionally connected. So like we're in this together. And she goes, oh, wait, you do? Guess what? You have a sister. And you also have a brother. I'm really excited. She gives me their names, their addresses, the day they got married, their children's names, phone numbers, everything. And she goes, look, here's my email address. I want to find out what happens. And you go get your answers. And I go back to my hotel room. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to call this. I decided to call the man. I just felt like it would be easier. And so um, I call him. And while I'm ringing the phone, I am a nervous wreck because I'm thinking, I'm getting ready to potentially Jerry Springer somebody's life. (laughs) So I called. I don't know if he's going to be mean, nice, think I'm looking for money, you know, and all I really wanted to know was who my dad was. And so I have the phone's ringing, and he answered it. 
<laughs> and he goes, I go, um, yeah, um, hi, uh, and my name is Stephanie. I don't really know, and, um, well, she, I'm from America, and I just, and he goes, wait, did you say your name was Stephanie? And did you say you're from America? I said, I did. He goes, I know who you are. I think you're my sister. He called me his sister. I was so excited. So we decide that we were going to meet the next day. And we go and we have lunch and we have a beer. And we start talking. And I say, well, you know, how did you even know I existed? He said, well, when Peter was on his deathbed, literally, he told us that in his office, in his safe, we were going to find letters from a woman and pictures of a little girl. The woman was very angry, the letters. <laughs> and um, that she says that the child is his. But he said, it might not be. Huh. So now, I'm a Black Panther cub. I'm so fiercely protective of my mom over this because I know how conservative she is. Plus, why would she lie about it? It would have been so much easier to just say he got killed in a car accident. It was harder for her to tell the truth. So I knew that was the case. So we kind of go through this dance about him like trying to tell me about his dad and kind of rationalizing a little bit how he could abandon a child. And then, you know... I'm protecting my mom, but we're also getting to know each other as brother and sister. And then he says, but you know what? My dad wasn't really the greatest necessarily. He drank a lot. He smoked a lot. He was a player. He was, you know, really good provider, but he even cheated on my mom with her best friend. And it's a good thing that you called me instead of my sister. She's still so angry with him, it would probably trigger something. So he goes, you know, I must have been really hard for you all those years, wondering and not knowing and not being able to live with your, you know, with your birth father. And I'm thinking to myself, after I found out what kind of a guy he was, I was like, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I was like, my dad, first of all, is still alive. Secondly, he rocks. And also, I kind of felt sorry for my brother. I'm like, I didn't live with a raging alcoholic, with a man that mistreated my mother. And I'm really proud of my mom, because you know what? She would not have put up with that shit. That's for sure. <laughs> so we decide that we're going to remain friends and you know stay in touch and start this new process with one another and the first person i called was tom i could not wait to call my adopted dad tom and i called him up i go dad guess what he goes what are you doing i go i'm in denmark he goes well, what are you doing there oh wait did you find Peter? Are you over there looking for Peter? I said, I am. He goes, well, come on, tell me what happened. You know, we've been in this together for a while. And I said, well, he, um, he's dead. But I did find out I have a brother and I have a sister. And I said, I really hope it didn't hurt your feelings that even after all these years of you being my dad, that I just really needed these questions answered. 
He goes, not at all. He goes, I'm so happy that you got your answers. And I love you very much. You're my daughter. And you're always going to be my daughter. But I think you need to call your mother. (laughs) I had been trying to call her, but... I kept missing her, and I had sent her an email to tell her what I was doing. And I get back to my hotel room, and I open that email, and I tell you what, man, she's roaring at me. I mean, roaring, all caps, explanation points. What are you doing over there by yourself? I'm mad at your husband that he let you go alone. What are you doing? Okay, you have this big fantasy that you're going to have this beautiful reunion with him, and you're not. He's not the person you think he is. You be careful. So she says, listen, you can ask him any questions you want to about your life, but what happened to me in my life is my business. And... She also said, you already know my story. I was there. I raised you. And you could not have had a better father than Tom. You two were made for each other. (laughs) So it really helped my relationship with my mom heal. I didn't think she was such a controlling person anymore. I just realized, you know what? this whole time she's been protecting her cub there was no way that she was going to let him anywhere near me because what he had done to her she was this young beautiful intelligent bright accomplished 26 year old woman who was a newlywed and was experiencing the magic of her firstborn child with a husband that just went poof gone No way was he going to get anywhere near me. So I'm really proud of my mom. I'm very grateful for her. And I can't tell you how I love, I love that damn Tom. I tell you what. (laughs) And you know what I'm really, really grateful for too? I don't smoke. This is Risk. This is Groove Armada behind me now. And we just heard from Stephanie Svensson 
had never told a story live on stage before. That was in Madison, Wisconsin. So much fun. Madison is is quite a trip. <laughs> I always enjoy going there. Before that, a little interstitial uh, by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, based on Tyson Purcell's ridiculous Fen Fitz Roberts voice. And now I want to talk about postage rates have gone up again, but Stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates. That kind of savings adds up, especially for small businesses. Plus, Stamps.com is completely online, which saves you time. No more inconvenient trips to the post office. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 20 for any letter, package, class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters, and there's no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Stamps.com saves you time and money. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Our final story on today's episode just came to us from the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. As you know, we recently did a show where we teamed up with Reba Sparrow and Eric Schur, who run the show there that you can find at mysteryboxshow.com. We did a joint show together several months back. So much fun. But those guys often send to us recordings from their own show that they think might also work on risk, and we've featured a lot of them. We're going to do that again today. In this story... Uh, laws are broken, uh, lines are crossed. I felt that uh, James Cox did an incredible job telling this story. Again, it was recorded at the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. Here is James Cox now with a story we call Mother Lovin'. In uh, 1984, I was 17 years old and I had just graduated from high school. And on a Tuesday afternoon in late June, I discovered that I was the subject of a police missing persons case, complete with a sheriff's deputy-led multi-county search effort, posters for the telephone poles, the whole bit. And I had no idea. Now it started the Thursday before when a bunch of us guys that worked at Little Caesar's Pizza were all hanging out at my buddy Chris's house after work. Now we always hung out at Chris's house because Chris's mom, Mary, was cool, (laughs) which meant she let us smoke pot. So Chris was an only child and Mary was a single parent and I think she wanted to kind of keep her eye on us so she let us do that there. 
Now, in addition to being cool, Mary also happened to be smoking hot. She was absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous. The most beautiful woman I had ever met face-to-face in my entire life up to that point. Every single guy in this group had a thing for her, and we never let Chris forget this for a second. It, it kind of defined Chris for us. We used to introduce him to people as the guy with the hot mom. Now, this particular Thursday, we were all hanging out at Chris's house playing video games, and Mary comes out of the kitchen and says, I got five bucks, I can kick all your asses at Pong. And we laughed, because even in 1984, Pong was pretty old school. Uh, but normally, Mary would come in on one of these nights and say something funny or just say hi, check us out and then run off and hide wherever moms go when there's a pack of teenage guys in their house. This particular night, she came in and sat down on the sofa right next to me. And I remember feeling a little bit of butterflies in my stomach and the back of my knees getting a little weird because I'd had a thing for this woman for a long time. When she sat down, she reached up and grabbed my right bicep and gave it a squeeze and said in a half whisper, have you been working out? <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really know what to do with that, so I didn't do anything with it. And the night went on, and, and Mary was hilarious. She was telling stories and jokes and talking shit to people, and it got really kind of late. And I remember I was standing up playing video basketball, and I was putting on some body English, you know? And I see that Mary is unmistakably checking out my ass. And I really didn't know what to do with that. So I just kind of stared at her. And she eventually caught my eye. And instead of looking away sheepishly, like I would have done, she smiled and said in that same half whisper, you have been working out. Well, my brain melted down like reactor four at Chernobyl. I mean, I was done. I tossed my controller to one of my buddies and I said, I need a drink of water. And I started to go, and Mary grabbed my right arm and said, no, 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 I'll get it, and kind of gave a tug. And then she grabbed the back of my shirt with her left hand and pulled me down into her lap. And my feet shot out in front of me, and the room exploded in laughter, and I'm absolutely mortified, turning every color of purple you can imagine. And Chris is yelling at me, get off my mom, you dumbass. And I finally got my feet down, and I'm trying to get off of Mary without touching her, which is difficult. And she's making a show of getting me off her lap with her right hand, but with her left, she's still pulling me down. And I panicked, didn't know what to do, so I went limp and rolled off her lap onto the floor. And I popped up with an apology. And like I said, it had gotten kind of late. And Chris, I think, got annoyed by all this. And he's like, all right, everybody, get out of here. I'm going to bed. So we started gathering up all our stuff to leave. And I was bumming a ride off one of my buddies because I didn't have a car. And Mary slides up behind me and says, hey, Jim, can you help me out in the kitchen here for a second? So I figured, you know, it's a tall person request. I'm going to go kill a spider or something. And I follow her behind the swinging doors into the kitchen and the door swings shut. And Mary kissed me right on the lips. Now, I had been kissed an appropriate number of times for a 17-year-old kid. I had had two serious girlfriends in high school, and by serious, I mean we had sex all the time. But it was awkward sex, it was embarrassing, literally and figuratively poking around in the dark. But I had at least been kissed enough 
to know that I had never been kissed like that before. It knocked me back against the door. Now, Mary took a step forward and she put her hands on my hips and looked me right in the eye again and said, I'm going to pick you up after work tomorrow night, so don't make any other arrangements. And she kissed me again and pushed me out the kitchen door. Now, I really didn't know what to do with that. Uh, I didn't tell anybody anything. I didn't sleep at all that night. For the first couple hours, I tossed and turned, going over the events of the night, over and over, trying to figure out, where did I make the mistake? Where was I picking up the wrong signals? I mean, I had seen The Graduate before, so I knew this kind of stuff existed. (laughs) But I didn't know that it actually happened in real life. And then it dawned on me that I was actually being seduced by my friend's gorgeous mom. And what did I think about that? I mean, this was the first time in my life. I didn't really have the words for it at 17, but it's the first time I ever really got this concept of consent. I had asked for consent many times, tacitly mainly, and gotten it a fair few, but I had never given consent to anybody for anything that I could remember. I mean, I was 17, this was my friend's mom, and I'd had a thing for her for a long time, but you know, my 17-year-old self didn't really know what to do this, so I had a real turmoil going on, and I had to look inside of me and decide what it is I really wanted to do, and it took me all of maybe four seconds to decide (laughs) that I wanted on that train, and I wanted to know where it was headed. And, I mean, as long as I felt safe, no boyfriends coming in to kick my ass or something, I was gonna kinda see this through to the end. So I go to work, and the day f- flies by. The only thing I ever, that I really remember from it was, dude, she's not going to be there. What if she's there? What if she's there? Dude, she's not going to be there. <laughs> but I got off work, and she was there, just like she said she would be. So I opened the door to her little VW Bug, and I got in the passenger seat, and she looked me right in the eye again and leaned forward, and this time I kissed back. So we drive to her house and all the lights are off and I didn't ask her where Chris was. I figured at this point she had that covered. (laughs) And we weren't there 20 seconds and we're at each other. Clothes are coming off. Within a few minutes we're both shirtless. And I remember trying to push her over towards the sofa and she took me by the hand and walked me back into her bedroom. Now if that wasn't remarkable enough, she then did something that absolutely changed my life forever. She turned on the lights. Now, I had said I'd had sex a few times, but it was always in the dark. We were ashamed. It was a moral collapse of our, of our, of our you know, we were just giving in to these animal desires. Sex wasn't beautiful. It was dirty. It was shameful. That's what it was. It was shameful. Mary was the first person that I had ever met who was not embarrassed by their sexuality. She was a fully integrated sexual being who celebrated it. She opened up a world to me that I didn't even know existed. I had always kind of thought the lessons that I'd been taught about sex were total bullshit, but Mary really confirmed it. She gave me permission to enjoy sex. Now, we had a lot of sex that, I I got there Friday night and I was there till Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) We had sex in the kitchen. We had sex in the living room, on the floor, in the shower. I missed my shift Saturday night 
because we were having sex. We went out for food on Sunday night and wound up having sex in our car. But it wasn't the sex that changed me. It wasn't. It was the ease and the grace that Mary brought to sex that opened my eyes. Now, Tuesday morning came, and she told me that Chris was going to be home that afternoon, and I had to go. So we had a late breakfast and had sex and took a shower together, and I got dressed with my Little Caesars uniform shirt, because that's all I had. And I needed a ride home, because I didn't have a car. So I called my buddy Merlin, he's my best friend, and he picked me up a couple blocks away from Mary's house, because I was being discreet. And I get in the car, and he's all questions. He's like, dude, what is going on? Your mom has gone batshit crazy. She told my mom that the deputies were there and they were going into Rock Island, Henry, and Scott counties looking for you. She made posters for the telephone poles. Dude, where the fuck have you been? I went from being king of the world to feeling like I was going to get arrested the minute my mom stopped beating me. So we roll up to my parents' house and I don't see any cop cars or anything, but... I go in the front door, and it was a total shit show. My mom was thrilled I was alive for about three seconds, and then started in on how big my head was, how long labor was, and for pushing that out of her vagina, she deserved better. And she was right, and I apologized over and over and over, and eventually she calmed down enough to call the cops to tell them that I had come home, just like they told her I would. And they insisted on coming out to interview me. Now, I couldn't figure out what they could arrest me for, but I also kind of wanted to be cagey. I didn't really want to say what I was doing, but the police have this way of wearing you down and asking you questions that you feel compelled to answer. And Eventually, standing in front of my mom and dad, I said that I got picked up after work on Friday and spent the weekend in bed with a beautiful older woman. The cops didn't believe me. (laughs) One of them got up in my face and said, now, James, during your ordeal, did you feel coerced or held against your will, threatened or assaulted in any way? And I burst out laughing right in his face. It's like, against my will, coerced, are you out of your mind? I had just gotten the most incredible education on sexual integration, personal awakening, and joy that anybody has ever received. Mary didn't just fuck my brains out, she fucked my shame out. She opened for me the door to a lifetime of joy and sex. And Mary, if you're out there anywhere, I just want to say thank you. I owe you so much.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Neil Finn behind me now, and we just heard from James Cox telling that story at the Mystery Box Show in Portland, Oregon. You can find them at mysteryboxshow.com. As we say over and over and over again, we do not endorse or seek to promote any life choices people might be making. That is illegal activity that was talked about in that story. And, you know, someone else going through similar circumstances might have been quite differently affected by the experience. Do not forget that there is so much bonus content. There's so many other stories you could have access to if you become a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. There's not just tons of bonus stories. There's uh, Last time we checked, it was something like 24 hours or something like that of bonus stories. Uh, but there's also personal check-ins from me, interviews with people on the staff. It's a great way to be a little bit more connected to the risk community. And of course, you really are helping. We desperately need the help of our fans to keep all of this running. So check it out at patreon.com slash risk. There's a ton of other ways to get involved in the risk community. You can look us up on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at risk show. There's the risk podcast fans discussion group on Facebook. There's our Reddit group. But probably most importantly of all, you can pitch us your stories or you can contact us if you see a story somewhere that you think someone should maybe tell on risk. If you see, you know, in the paper or on TV or whatever, someone with an extraordinary story, let us know and we'll see if we can reach out and get their story too. For your own pitches, everything is all explained at risk-show.com slash submissions. And don't forget all of our live shows coming up. You can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. And if you ever have questions about pitching us that you don't see answered, on the submissions page at risk-show.com. Just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Don't forget all the educational opportunities, training that we do in storytelling at thestorystudio.org. There's in-person workshops happening all the time in New York, in Los Angeles, and in Minneapolis. Plus, there's our online classes where you can meet with an instructor and a few other students and see them and share stories with them right there online. All of this is happening at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I see you've got a pitcher of beer there. I'd love it if you'd pull me a point. 
I see you've got a pitcher of beer there. I'd love it if you'd pull me a point. I see you've got a pitcher of beer there. I'd love it if you'd keep fucking her! <laughs> <laughs>